Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Military History Plus, a podcast that looks at military history in a wider context. And today uh, I am joined by my co-host on the podcast, Dr. Spencer Jones. Hi, Spencer. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Hello, Gary. And we're going to continue our theme uh, of looking at books which have influenced us as historians and have had uh, a wider influence on the way we look at the subject. And so, Spence, would you like to introduce today's book? I Which one are we looking at? I certainly would, Gary. Uh, the, the book I've chosen as an influence on myself, uh, my work, and, and indeed the field it's written about, is Paddy Griffith's Battle Tactics of the American Civil War, which I believe was published under a different name in the USA. I believe well, it was published under the, the, the title Rally Once More or Rally Once Again. But the copy well, I have that was published in the UK by Crowwood Press is called Battle Tactics of the American Civil War. And it's a book that I first read well over 20 years ago and has, has remained, I still have my dog-eared copy floating around. I have to confess to the listeners that uh, my copy is full of marginalia. I, it was When I first read it, I was going through a period where I made notes directly on the book. I know that this is now considered... Uh, an act of utmost vandalism amongst historians, but uh, I think it, the fact that my my copy is so covered with little handwritten notes in pencil is testament to how interesting I found it and how interesting I still find it. Well, marginalia is fine if you uh, end up being extremely influential and famous. <laughs> so when the, um, the library of the late Professor Lord Jones of um, of West Bromwich. <laughs> yeah. Is, uh, is is being investigated? Your marginalia will be will be re- really really valuable for future historians. I've actually got the original copy of the book, which you correctly called is uh, correctly said is called Rally Once Again: Battle Tactics of the American Civil War. And I actually got this copy from Paddy himself oh, because he was a colleague of mine at Sandhurst when it came out in 1987. Now, bizarrely, I didn't get him to sign it, which is pretty mm. daft. But nonetheless, uh, I got this book when it first came out, uh, and like you, it's a book which had a real deep influence. So let's, I guess, start by looking at who Paddy Griffith was. Uh, what did he? What 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 work did he do? So, Spence, just ha- if you had to encapsulate Paddy as a historian in in a sentence or two, what would you say? Capture Paddy in a sentence or so. Iconoclast. Um, by his own description, a historical gorilla who would appear behind enemy lines, so to speak, cause havoc and then disappear, uh, never to be seen again. Um, passionate about military history, passionate about wargaming, an eccentric man, and I'm sure he, his close friends wouldn't mind his description. Is sometimes a difficult man as well, and um, somebody who uh, could be a little bit chalk and cheese, it has to be said. But also, I, I, I would hand on heart say a man who had a huge influence on, on my career as a person, a man who was very generous with his time, and who in, in many ways put me on a different path because he suggested to me quite directly, that I was wasting my talents in, in my existing career. And what I really need to do is become a military historian. And um, he, without that, we may not be on this podcast now. So, um, but you also knew Paddy uh, very well too. And in some ways, you probably knew him better than I, because you, you knew him for longer. So how would you describe Paddy? Well, I mean, I mean basically what you've just said, I would I would agree with all of that. You know, he, he was a very generous man. Uh, he was a genuinely innovative and original historian and there's not many of those around to to to, 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 to be frank um he's very kind to me when i was a, a junior lecturer at, at sandhurst uh and yeah and he, he could be a bit grumpy he could be a bit difficult but yeah much missed and um a, a genuine i guess just to put the background in that um he got his phd or dphil i guess from oxford mm. yes and then he was a, a lecturer stroke senior lecturer at Sandhurst from 1973 until late 80s, early 90s. So actually, he did have a a solid academic background, but he was always a bit of a maverick. And I think he was he regarded himself and was regarded as being outside, if you like, the military history establishment, despite the fact he taught at Sandhurst. Absolutely. And uh, I think, although he sometimes wore that as a little bit of badge of pride, I think it actually it hurt him a little bit that he was, was outside that and was perhaps not not taken quite as seriously as perhaps he perhaps as he deserved to, and uh, I think actually some of that, um, some of I don't say he was bitter because he he wasn't necessarily a bitter man in any ways, 
Um, but I think some of his frustrations actually stemmed from this book, uh, as he explained to me um, when we discussed it over the years. Um, and I think that's that's a shame, really, because it's um, it's one of those books that if he if he was still with us, of course, he passed away um, over a decade ago now. If he was still with us now, I think he'd be very gratified to see where the book is in the historiography. But of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves there. So <laughs> come on okay, to that, well, I'm sure. Okay. It's a book about the American Civil War, but let's put it into some sort of context. So uh comes out in 1987. What's the sort of state of of the historiography of the American Civil War in the mid 90s. It's that's a really interesting point. And, and Paddy actually said to me that one of the reasons he was motivated to write this book was the the state of US Civil War historiography. There was a real resurgence of interest in serious writing about the Civil War in the 1980s in the USA. The the exact cause of this this resurgence of interest are, are debated really. It's it's partially that the the hangover of Vietnam had lifted that there was a resurgence of interest because of the um, approaching 125th anniversary of the outbreak of the war. There was um, a public interest in it. There was a, a one of those, uh, all the stars aligned, academic interest and public interest, uh, both were, were reaching critical mass. And it's interesting that the Paddy's um, original publication, my, my version is from 1989, but the original version, 87, uh, the next year, James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, came out of course a monumental single volume study of the war that won the pulitzer prize and then in 1990 ken burns is a superb in many ways a documentary on the the civil war was also aired and, and was astoundingly influential and amidst all this of course um paddy's work appeared now paddy's work wasn't the only work that was being published on on battle tactics and fighting in the, the u.s civil war there'd been an influential book published in the early 1980s with the, the evocative title Attack and uh, Attack and Die, which was a, a study of the US Civil War, which essentially argued the Confederacy lost because it attacked and it was impossible to attack in the US Civil War because the technology was too devastating, casualties were too immense. And Paddy told me personally that this this book, above all else, actually prompted him to seriously think about writing a, a, a counter book, if you will. And that would ultimately um, grow in the telling and it would become uh, battle tactics in the Civil War. So he's writing at a time when there is a huge amount of publication going on, a, a real resurgence in the subject. And there was some very good and interesting work published in this period too. McPherson's Battle Cry is probably the most famous. Uh, and so within this, this huge, seething mass of American Civil War historiography, uh, Paddy's relatively slim book, I think it's only about 230 pages, initially emerged unseen, rather like the uh, the Hunley, the Confederate submarine. It slipped into the waters uh, without being seen. Uh, but it is, it is very much fitting into a really, really vibrant historiography at this time. Yeah, it's, it's worth picking up on that to spend a little bit more time because the American Civil War has always attracted a lot of attention from amateur historians. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of a joke that, you know, there's there probably isn't more than a, you know, a blade of grass on Gettysburg that hasn't actually had a, a book written. Um, but the 1980s was a time, I think, with more scholarship. And gosh, uh, rem, uh, remind me of the authors of, a, of, of, of a, a, Attack and Die. It was, that was... Um, uh, McGrady uh, and... Um, uh, oh, goodness me. I should have... Uh, I've got a copy of it. Great, Brady, McWhiney or... Name like oh, that. is it? Um, so, uh, Grady McWhiney, uh, which is um, <laughs> quite quite remarkable name. Grady McWhiney and Perry Perry Jameson, uh, Attack and Die, right, because Tactics and Southern Heritage. Because I I uh, had had a, a semester at the University of Southern Mississippi in the mid 1990s as a as a as a visiting professor, and Grady McWhiney was there at the same time. Mm. Uh, mm. And I I remember having a bit of a chat with him about this, but I must say the. The second part of their thesis that it actually was you know, the Celtic military heritage led the um, Confederates to do all this attacking. I must say, I didn't find terribly convincing. I, I think um, most other historians haven't either. But I think the point is just to reinforce your, your, your point that actually there was an awful lot going on at this time. Mm. And yet most of it's done by Americans and Paddy's yes. a Brit. The fact that Paddy was a Brit, did, did that make a difference? Uh, it, it made a huge difference. And uh, <laughs> I was sharing an anecdote a little bit out of, out of class um, so this is like the late 80s. I published um, an article in an American journal way back in 2010 about the American Civil War, which was accepted. It was published. It's about horse supply and field artillery in the American Civil War. And the first peer reviewer, who anonymous peer reviewer came back 
immediately picked up that I was British because of I'd spelt everything uh, in British English. And his first comment on my, my peer review was, it's obvious that this author is British. And then his peer review was almost a parody of a peer review which essentially argued that that I had no right to, to make these kind of comments. But I was by no means as iconoclastic as Paddy. And that was 2010. In, 19, <laughs> in the late 1980s, um, for a Brit, especially a Brit who looked like Paddy, because he definitely was uncompromising in his appearance, uh, he was ferociously attacked, uh, not on the grounds of his scholarship, but on the grounds of that, how dare this Brit come and tell American academics, what this is about. And they're not around anymore, but in preparation for this podcast, I wanted to try and find some of the old reviews because I know Paddy was was actually quite stung by these reviews, although he made light of it later on. Well, I, I um, remember, yes. And, and these were, I couldn't actually find any copies. That they're behind paywalls now, but uh, I know he showed me some of these and they were, they were absolutely vicious. They, these were not just criticisms of his work, they were criticisms of him as a person, um, you know, completely out of line in many ways. Um, fascinating in some ways that 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 the reaction was so visceral towards a historian who's trying to make a, a valid point about a conflict um yeah. I, you know i i can't think of too many other historians who military historians who've had to endure that kind of bruising treatment just based on their uh, their nationality well I, I i do remember i mean paddy was clearly upset by it uh mm. and, and and absolutely right 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 he should be it was it was pretty pretty disgraceful mm. okay yeah. um so um, what's the premise of the book? What's the book about? So, so it's a book, as the title suggests, it's a book about American Civil War tactics. Now, this is really important because Paddy himself make, makes quite clear in the book that there's been an awful lot written about the, the American Civil War in a broad sense. It's politics, it's strategy, it's battles at a high level, the command decisions of Lee and Grant and others. But the nuts and bolts of how the war was fought have not been studied in quite the same um, quite the same way, and that this was leading to lots and lots of, in many ways, bad history. Ideas being repeated over and over again without anybody seriously challenging them, because nobody had seriously looked at how battles worked at a tactical level. Now. That's not to say there weren't books that studied battles at lower level. There had been a multitude of memoirs, unit studies, battle studies, and so on, but. None of them had got, at least as Paddy argued, none of them had got to the bottom of what did a civil war battle actually look like. And we mentioned previously that he was animated greatly by attack and die. And he thought that attack and die was the, in many ways, the pinnacle of this kind of history that based its entire premise on a misunderstanding of what an American civil war battle for, battle looked like tactically. And so he set out to try and really analyze what what tactics were employed, how did they function, how did they differ from different parts of the Civil War and different eras of the Civil War as well. And he wanted to try and really force American historians to engage with the, the nuts and bolts of a battle, not just merely talking broad sweeps of arrows across maps, as he once said to me, but instead, how did a single regiment engage its opposite number? And so it's, it's a very granular, avowedly tactical history. There's very little here that goes above uh, regiments or perhaps brigades. This is very much an on-the-ground, small, relatively small unit tactical study. And that, in the context of this period, was quite unusual. The, 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 definitely the trend was for very high-level material, big, broad studies. And as Paddy once said to me, comforting myths that could be told again and again. And uh, and so this was a book that was designed to try and re study the Civil War from the bottom up and hopefully then influence studies of its strategy as well. Well, two, two things maybe spring to mind about that. So in, in some ways, its techniques is not unlike John Keegan's in Face of Battle, which we've discussed in the previous podcast. Mm. <clears throat> and uh, sorry, I forgot what the second one was, but uh, the, the, the connection with, uh, with, with Face of Battle, I think is, is fa fairly obvious. Mm. Absolutely, it is, and and I would say, although Paddy never said this to me, and there's no really hint of it in the book, um, Paddy, the battle tactics is almost um, it would not be possible, I think, without the the work of John Keegan, which of course was published uh, a decade earlier. It's very much based on on that uh, or that that approach, and of course, Paddy's own historiographical method, which we'll, we'll get onto a little bit later, 
is is very heavily influenced by by Keegan as well. So this is we, we used the phrase in a previous podcast about John Keegan's work, a uh, Keeganism, uh, uh, the Keeganization of history, and this is this is a, a great example of of Keeganized history in many respects. Well, again, telling tales out of school, I think there was there were tensions between Paddy and John Keegan. Uh, mm. I think partly because they were both working in the same sort of area, but I think Paddy went off in a slightly different angle. So I remember another thing I was going to mention is he had previously written uh, Forward into Battle, mm. Mm. which uh, is uh, a, a, an excellent tactical study, but he looks at uh, the Napoleonic War and the Vietnam War and various other things as well. So, so actually, this is not Paddy's first venture into this sort of micro-tactical level history, but I think this is mm. the his... his um, the culmination of these efforts, because this is where he really pours his heart and soul in. Mm, mm, absolutely. And his his interest in tactics was maintained throughout his career. Uh, he, he was just very interested in how battles actually actually function, perhaps more so than he was interested in, in higher command and, uh, and these sort of things. It's worth mentioning here, too, that, that I think Paddy's um, dedication to wargaming played a role here. He was very interested in trying to simulate um, battles and the best way to do that was to understand the nuts and bolts of them and i know he would spend uh, many happy hours uh devising various scenarios and, and rule sets to try and simulate these actions i i think you can sometimes see some of the influence of of his fascination with wargaming in actually battle tactics. you can uh his, his his acute knowledge of um ranges of weaponry and so on uh in a deep study on this and it's importance i think is uh is testament to his his, uh, his interest in wargaming trying to simulate it. Okay, so what's the what's the context that um, Pad- Paddy is placing his work in? Is that specifically European context? <clears throat> this this is one of the reasons I think Paddy got such a bruising treatment in the reviews because he he it sets his stall out very early on this and and that's his argument that American exceptionalism which is the view that the American Civil War was was absolutely unique that it was without parallel that it should have been studied more by European armies and that it was a foretaste of modern war. Uh, Paddy takes a very, very uh, strong line on this. And he he regards that American exceptionalism has been a barrier to serious study of the war, that it's caused cognitive closure, really, amongst American historians who believe that the, the American Civil War stands alone, that it, it doesn't have any parallels in Europe or indeed elsewhere in the world. And because they've not looked at it in a wider context, it means that that it becomes a, a self self reinforcing prophecy that it must be exceptional because there's no other war quite like it. And for Paddy, this is a serious problem because he himself, I believe, his PhD was actually on the French Second Empire Army uh, in the yes, 1830s, a, a relatively um, narrow subject, but one he was expert in, and he was very interested in, in European warfare in general in this period. And he makes the, the very valid point and, and really emphasizes it repeatedly that the, the casualties, the, the nature of battle, um, even the weapons and technology that was being used in the American Civil War was not in itself unexpected to European armies. He, he places in context that the casualties of the American Civil War, which are often held as to be earth shattering and possibly high, are, are no worse than the than intense battles in the Napoleonic Wars, and they're comparable to battles that are being fought in Europe in the same period, whether uh, the French and the Austrians in 1859 or um, the German Wars of Unification in the 1860s and the 1870s. And that when one looks at it in a, in a broader context, the, the American experience is, is not actually exceptional in terms of its um, its casualties and its violence. In actual fact, he, he turns the, the tables on this and says that the, the exceptional element of the American experience is, is not its casualties. It's actually the fact that America is not a militarized society. It doesn't have a large standing army. It doesn't have a meaningful standing army, really, in the context of the uh, the Civil War. In It has to generate new armies from, from scratch. And these armies are inexperienced. They're, they're greatly inexperienced. They, they experience problems not dissimilar to the new armies of Britain in the First World War. There's no one to train them. There's nobody um, to take charge of them. There's inexperience at every single level of these um, of these units. And although they might be brave, they, they simply don't know the business of soldiering. And this is something that, that Paddy puts a great deal of emphasis on, which leads to them trying to overcome battlefield problems through sheer courage rather than through uh, tactical uh, expertise. That there's also two other aspects of uh, American exceptionalism which he highlights. Uh, 
One is the terrain that the battles are fought across. And there's been a a long and vigorous debate in the Civil War about what's more important, the Western theatre around Tennessee or the Eastern theatre around Virginia. And Paddy makes the point that the Eastern theatre is simply easier to manoeuvre in. It's There's the better road and rail networks. The terrain is generally flatter, uh, not not as heavily forested, although, of course, there are heavily forested areas, such as the wilderness. Whereas in the West, it's not as developed. It's much harder to manoeuvre in. It's harder to support your armies logistically. And in battle, it's hard to get anything done because the the terrain is so rugged uh, and so difficult to actually actually fight in. And he says these are the exceptional American elements. The the, the casualties, the the technology, the, the way the war is fought is not exceptional in itself. And what makes it unusual within the context of war in this period is the fact the American armies are so completely inexperienced and the terrain they're fighting in is, is peculiarly difficult. I just um, put, put in mind of uh, some previous British writers on the American Civil War called G.F.R. Henderson, mm. uh, eventually contemporary of the Civil War, and of course uh, J.F.C. Fuller and Basil Little Hart writing it early in the in 20th century. I, I think they had sort of touched on some of these, mm. um, but uh, um, Paddy obviously restating them quite vigorously, I think it's fair to say, in the 1980s made a difference. I'm just actually just um, flicking through the book, and uh, one of the subheadings covering this area I talked about is his feet Europeans and perverted professionals. Uh, that's the sort of paddyism which you can see might get up the nose of a certain sort of person if you're predisposed not to like uh, a Brit wading into your civil war. Absolutely. He would not pull his punches on these kind of... Uh these kind of comments and uh that that chapter about um professionalism is is, is emphasizing this idea that of american exceptionalism in in terms of how the war was viewed and fought and that the look at professional european armies or the attitudes of professional european armies although often correct their their analysis not entirely wrong uh is dismissed on the grounds that these are um you know effete europeans and who don't don't understand the nature of the, the war and so on and so forth and that that's encourage the closure of study of of the war in its wider context it's a but you you're absolutely right that's a, a classic paddyism and it would definitely rub people up the wrong way and and indeed it did so um that's that's perhaps uh we'll come back to perhaps his uh his use of language later on in the podcast well spencer we both very familiar with the term learning curve from our studies and writings on the first world war Can, does Paddy see a similar sort of learning curve going on in the American Civil War? He he does. And he makes the point that, that the armies start with almost no experience and that the nature of particularly the Union Army, which prefers to raise new regiments rather than rebuilding damaged regiments, it tends to perpetuate that inexperience. And that initially our, the, the units have got really nothing but their courage and their cohesion to carry them through battle. They're not trained, they're not well, they're not well trained. They're led by officers who've got no experience. And that there are, uh, he doesn't use the phrase learning curve or learning process, but that's what essentially what he's describing, that through a brutal process of, of learning on the job, the, the units slowly develop their combat efficiency. Survivors gain useful skills, surviving officers um, prove their worth, learn a lot about battle. And that gradually the, the armies become battle-hardened and uh, and reach a peak of effectiveness. What's quite interesting and what I think is something that perhaps in the field of First World War studies we, we don't look at in quite the same way is Paddy believes that the uh, American Civil War units actually had a peak as well. That after a f- perhaps two or three battles that they'd survived in, the survivors were at a peak of effectiveness. They got military skills, they knew their business, but they still retained their courage and their determination and their willingness to press forward. But that after that time, their, their effectiveness would slowly decline and they'd become what Paddy rather unkindly calls old lags, that they would be too wise, that they would not be willing to go into battle, that they would um, prefer to stay at a distance and deliver long-range fire and uh, and, and dig earthworks and, and so on and not press on. And he actually believes that this difficulty, this, this sort of peaking of units and then their... I hesitate to use the word deterioration, but perhaps decline into wily veterans who weren't that willing to press the attack contributes to some of the stalemate that you see in the in the American right. Civil War. And I that's a very interesting aspect of the book. It's it's actually, I think in the context of the Civil War, there's certainly something to be said uh, for this. And some of the examples he presents are interesting. And some of the micro histories that have come subsequently that have studied 
individual regiments have found something similar. And nevertheless, I think perhaps he he takes it a little too far, and uh, he's, he's he does make the point. Or he tries to argue that the the lack of decision around Petersburg, for example, is at least partially due to the fact that units are exhausted, they become old lags, they're not willing to press forward. And perhaps that argument's taken a little bit too far. But I think the idea of a learning curve within the field, perhaps reaching a peak and then um, going into decline, is definitely one that's worth discussing. And uh, certainly there is a learning process going on. And it's a brutal one. It's uh, lessons are paid for in blood, that's for sure. But the units that emerge from this are... Um, often quite combat effective after they've they've survived two or three battles. Well, pa- Paddy's argument uh, is obviously very reminiscent of the idea of the combat curve in individual, that you mm-hmm. go into battle um, green, you become combat effective, and then you tail off as you become either overconfident or, or, or you become become very, very, very cautious. Now, mm-hmm. uh, question asked for pure ignorance here. Were units in the American Civil War being constantly being given reinforcements? So did you have new blood coming in? Because in, in it strikes the cons- me that... One reason mm. that wouldn't apply to, for example, the British Army of the First World War is that you're constantly getting new people coming in, and so you are renewing, uh, you know, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're renewing the personnel. So, so the old lags would, I think, be outnumbered by by the new people. Mm. It's an interesting point because the Confederacy did reinforce its units, uh, and Paddy believes that's one of the reasons that the, the Confederacy, and, until around about 1864, is perhaps unit for unit more effective than the Union. Whereas the Union preferred to um, fold down units that had been smashed, very badly damaged, and just raise new ones, which tended to perpetuate inexperience, where the, these, these, um, the new, newly raised units would be full of, of vigour and fight, but they, they wouldn't know a lot about actually conducting themselves in battle. Um, the classic example that Paddy actually cites is in 1864, when the Union gets a, an injection of new infantry from the Union heavy artillery batteries. Now, th- these were originally batteries that were in place around Washington, D.C. and other cities in the north. And they've been sat there for, for a long time, and they've, they've actually done nothing. They've not fired a shot in anger. It's clear the Confederates aren't going to lay siege to Washington. And so these these um, artillerymen are quickly repurposed as in- infantry, and they're sent into battle in the Overland Campaign in 1864. But of course, they're totally inexperienced as infantry. There's no attempt to seed them with um, experienced officers or NCOs. They're very brave, and they go into battle very determinedly, and that they get shot up very badly. And, and Paddy sort of cites this as a um, a classic example of how inexperience could perpetuate itself. And um, whereas the Confederacy uh, prefers, partially for uh, reasons of manpower, it just doesn't have the manpower to continuously raise fresh units. It tends to reinforce damaged units, so you get more of a, um, as you were saying. Uh, new fresh recruits, fresh conscripts, I should say, arrive. Um, they they fill out the unit, and you've got an experienced core that survived in the middle. But you generally you, you're going to have more conscripts who are learning on the job, which which gives them some um, some vigor in the attack, as Paddy would have it. Well, I remember conversations with Paddy back in the eighties. He was very keen on rifle the, the rifle debate mm. in the Civil War, and I think remember his his views were quite controversial. That's one of the reasons why he got a, a bit of a Bit, bit of a, a kicking in some various reviews. That's that's right, and I think this is in some ways that the the real heart of the, the the book, and this is his deep dive onto the nature of rifles in the American Civil War. If you compare his his passages on what rifles can do with the passages on rifle firepower in Attack and Die, for example, which was only published six years earlier, I think it was published in 1981, Attack and Die. In Attack and Die, rifles are essentially portrayed as, as rifles of the First World War, smokeless, exceptionally accurate, capable of firing over a thousand yards. Now, in, in, in perfect conditions, maybe you could do that on, on test range, maybe in the 1860s. But what Paddy does is he he goes beyond the theoretical technology of a rifle and through a lot of lot of, of I have to say um real spade work in the um, in in the archives and in memoirs, he he's able to present well what range did people actually start shooting at? And this is in some ways the most revolutionary aspect of his book because he's he presents a very strong case that units would be opening fire somewhere in the region of, of about 100 yards to 150 yards. Well, that's and Napoleonic that is, is, it's, it's Napoleonic ranges. It, it really is. Artillery firing perhaps 600 to 800 yards, although they could fire, they did have range to fire a lot further. 
but the, you're you're firing up very close ranges and the reasons for, for this close range fire is is threefold first of all units are just inexperienced they're um they're not good individual marksmen their officers aren't particularly well trained in fire control they want to get as close as they can because that way your first volley is going to deal the most damage and units in the civil war quickly recognize it's that first volley that's the killing volley because coming into the second factor once you're you fired a volley your entire frontage is blanketed in smoke you actually can't see a target so it, the accuracy of the rifle although uh, advantageous you're not going to be picking individual targets you're going to be firing into smoke it's going to be difficult to see people are going to be reloading and firing at different speeds casualties are going to be mounting so your fire becomes progressively uh, more and more ragged after your first volley so two factors there the the lack of experience people want to get close the smoke after your first volley so you've got to be close and then finally the terrain as well but the, the built-up nature of, I say built-up, that implies urban, but in fact you're fighting in a broken ground, you're fighting amongst forests, uh, you're fighting agricultural fields that are often overgrown. You simply can't see that far. It's Apart from a few specialists, uh, marksmen, snipers, there are some snipers in the American Civil War, of course. For a, a fighting regiment, you're just going to have to get close and fire fast. And this greatly diminishes the, the technological advantages that the rifle has that's not to say it removes them entirely because a rifle is still more accurate than a musket it fires on a, a better trajectory if you if you can keep your rifle uh, level and not um, have it kick up into your shoulder you're gonna uh you're, you're gonna deliver more accurate fire than with a musket um but in terms of this being a, a revolutionary weapon uh, paddy says no it, it's the nature of battle prevents it being revolution the ranges of firefights are fractionally higher than those in the um, the uh, Napoleonic Wars. But that fraction is also important because once you've started firing as an American Civil War regiment, it's very hard to stop. Again, because of inexperience, because of lack of training, once you've fired your first volley, there's a tendency to stand still and just keep firing until you perceive that the enemy in front of you has stopped firing. And then you may advance again, but by then you're ragged, you're tired, you've had casual. It's difficult to keep going. Whereas Paddy makes the case that European armies, better trained, um, better drilled, would get closer before their first volley in the knowledge that once you start firing, it's difficult to stop. You want to fire your first volley and then rush in. Whereas if you fire your first volley at 150 yards, that's quite a long run to actually make contact with the enemy. If you can get really close, get to 50 yards and fire a volley, the enemy's sh shocked and shattered, and then it's a lot quicker to run 50 yards than 100. And this is um, a really key point, that the ranges are much lower than um, historians have, have rather casually assumed, and that the firefights themselves are, are far more chaotic. This isn't just a case of a unit looking at another unit and calmly mowing them down with carefully aimed, perfectly accurate fire. It's it's bloody and it's confusing and, and it's chaotic, and therefore the technological advantage is, is very quickly eroded. And this removes the, the sort of the idea of American exception. I'd also add that he makes very good points about the prevalence of, in many ways, obsolete weapons, whether these are six-pounder artillery pieces, which are really Napoleonic size and weight, whether it's the use of muskets by both Union and Confederacy, especially in the Western theatre, whether it's the, the, the relative failure of things like rifled artillery, which starts the war with a tremendous reputation, but by the latter stages of the war is being used purely for siege work. In battle, people want to use smoothbore cannons instead because they deliver so much more crushing fire. They can, For a start, they can fire canisters, devastating. And that the war is actually not, in tactical terms, it is not a particularly technological war for this reason. And he, from that, he then extrapolates and takes careful aim at the idea that, that the war becomes unique because of its use of trenches. He makes the point mm. that earthworks have been around since the dawn of organized warfare. Uh, the, the Romans were famous for their earthworks. Napoleonic armies used earthworks and so on. And he, he argues what? that the, the, the prevalence of earthworks is not a response to firepower. It's actually uh, for a, a host of other reasons instead, not least the fact that units are becoming lagged out, if you will, and are, and are keen to dig in the moment they, they reach a position. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that um, the idea that trench warfare was somehow born uh, in the 1860s or, or, or in 1914 is, is, of course, quite prevalent, but completely wrong. Um, trench warfare is as old as siege war, for example. I, I remember years ago, first time I was, I was at a conference in New Zealand and I was interviewed on New Zealand radio and I was asked by um, the interviewer, 
uh, what did I think of the idea that Maori invented trench warfare? Well, actually, someone has come up with this idea, but I'd never heard of it at the time, and I'd sort of expressed express polite disbelief, mm. only to discover this was a sort of a you know, cherished uh, ki- Kiwi, uh, Kiwi Okay, but, uh, but trench warfare and firepower. Uh, Paddy, how, how does he handle the idea that this that this is actually is uh, prefiguring the First World War? He's, I think it's fair to say he's absolutely dismissive of this. And he's very keen to, to place this in a wider European context and the, the widespread use of earthworks, the understanding of earthworks, in fact, as a, as a tool of war, as you've just mentioned. And it's not just the Europeans who understand earthworks. He, he does make the point that the American army before the um, Civil War, heavily influenced by the French, far mm-hmm. more so influenced by the French than any other European army, and that the American um, educational curriculum, military educational curriculum at West Point is absolutely packed with engineering. Um, yeah. In many ways, it's an engineering curriculum. It's overwhelmingly based on this, and that the um, those who uh, the officers who've been through West Point all understand the importance of military engineering. They they really do, and the, the appearance of trenches and earthworks and fortification is not anything revolutionary. It's what they've been taught in the eighteen thirties, forties, and fifties. It's it's what they know, and the, the fact that, it, that trenches are used in the the Civil War. Uh, particularly from the, in the latter stage of the war to, to quite a large extent, is is really nothing new. It's nothing unexpected. It's not anything that that's a surprise. And it's the idea that people are forced to take shelter because of the, the weight of firepower that's sweeping the battlefield. Um, Griffith has, has very little time for this. Um, yes, trenches are, are very good at protecting you um, in these types of battles. Assaulting a trench is difficult. Uh, it's It's very challenging. But the idea that this is a a direct reaction to this fire-swept battlefield is, uh, in Paddy's view, absolutely not not correct. And uh, I, I think that there's definitely he's on the right lines there. There's there's a tendency to see the um, the siege of Petersburg in 1864 and 65 as well. We'd reached the, the the pinnacle of trench warfare, but as Paddy says, this is actually a siege. It's something different um, to to the Western Front. This is an attempt to besiege the Confederate army around an important part of Richmond, uh, and that that actually happens. It's not a case of both armies are totally exhausted; they they can't break through. Uh, it suits the Union to lock the Army of Northern Virginia in position. Uh, and slowly but surely grind it down. And so Paddy makes the point that, that trenches, one, they're not revolutionary at all. They're, they're not only um, go back a long way in history, but they're also part of the American military tradition. They're just being brought sure. back in a, on a larger scale because the armies are bigger. And that then, therefore, they're not a reaction to the battlefield itself. Yeah, I must say, when, when I read back in the 80s, it was an eye-opener to me, but it made sense. Mm, um, mm. And I've always been slightly suspicious of attempts to link the American Civil War with the First World War. I mean, clearly there are some, but it's it's I think it's a lot more subtle than than some people would have you believe. I think Pat, Paddy got put, put it really put put his finger on it. But mm. I guess you know, having gone on to the First World War brings us back to the whole again. One one of the crux of the book is why is there this stalemate? Why don't you get a decisive victory on the on, on the like Austerlitz or Waterloo or something? Something. I, I seem to remember that, that, that Pat Paddy. Um, Ruffled, ruffled a few feathers with his, his views on this. Uh, he, he certainly did, because Paddy's big view on this is cavalry, that the, the American armies don't have battlefield cavalry in the same way that the European armies. And one of the reasons for this is, again, due to training, that to, to train on battlefield cavalry who can charge in the midst of battle and uh, you deliver a shock action, it, it takes a long time. It's not something that comes naturally. You've got to train both men and horses it's going to take a long time to prepare a battlefield cavalry. The U.S. armies, uh, the Union and Confederacy, don't have that time. They don't have that experience. Cavalry in um, the American military prior to the Civil War does not really act in that way. It's mainly fighting out. Um, it's fighting Native Americans out in the West, where knee to knee, stirrup to stirrup charges are just not a feature of that type of warfare. Instead, American cavalry fights as mounted infantry in many ways. Uh, but Paddy yeah. says that once you you're, you're actually fighting two um, conventional armies in a way that the lack of battlefield cavalry is a serious impediment to to decisive battle. And he just makes some interesting points that there's there's real moments, uh, particularly for the Confederacy, it has to be said in the, the early stage of the war, where Union armies are very roughly handled, um, are are routed. You know, we can think of First Bull Run or Second Bull Run, Chancellorsville, uh, other heavy defeats for the for the Union where if the Confederates had had 
um, a couple of divisions of properly trained battlefield cavalry. They could have really got in amongst the retreating Union army uh, and destroyed it. And, you know, he, he makes makes the case about Jeb Stewart's limited cavalry action against the, the tail of the Union army at the end of First Bull Run, where that they caught just a handful of cavalry cause a, a considerable amount of chaos. Uh, and these are not trained cavalry in many respects. They're sort of individual riders chasing some some fugitives, but they cause a real panic. If there'd been a division or two of, of trained cavalry, then, then what could they have achieved? And in fact, he attributes the, the in some ways, Union success at the end of the American Civil War, when the, the trench lines finally break down at Petersburg and Lee tries to run for it and gets run down at Five Forks, to the fact that they, the Union has finally developed really effective battlefield cavalry. And it's a mixture of, of fire and shock cavalry. It can, they're armed with repeating um, carbines. They, they also carry a sword that they can carry into action. And that by this stage, they've become trained, battle-experienced, and they've become pretty effective. If they'd been around at the start of the war, that type of cavalry, uh, Paddy argues that the, the, the battles that, that were won by either side, in fact, um, victory, localized victory could have been turned into a decisive one, and the <laughs> enemy could have been run to ground. And this, of course, in the context of when he was writing and the context of American exceptionalism in the historiography was seriously ruffled some feathers. <laughs> it seriously did. But yeah. it is, in many ways, an interesting point and, um, and one that I think is, is has subsequently become part of the historiography. Well, I remember being very struck by this argument when I, when I first and thinking in a wider context about American military culture. It does make sense. Mm. I think I'm right in saying hadn't the American army in the fifty in the eighteen fifties done away with the division with with the idea of having dragoons or what have you. They'd simply become cavalry. Yes, yes. Which, uh, which actually yeah. says something about the way they regarded it, because of course traditionally, you know, dragoons are well, originally, originally they were mounted infantry, but they've become to mean uh, heavy cavalry as opposed, opposed to light. They've done away with all of that. And of course, if you're thinking back to earlier conflict in North America, I think mm. the British only deployed two regular. Cavalry regiments, the 16th and 17th Light Dragoons from memory in the American War of Independence. I think actually one replaced the other. Of course, there were some mm. local, local, locally recruited loyalists and the equivalent on the other side. But it was the American War of Independence was not a war in which cavalry, battlefield cavalry, had uh, much of a role to. Mm. So there isn't that much of a tradition of this sort of cavalry being used in North America. And certainly, of course, you're absolutely right about West Point and what have you. It's an engineering, as the Americans mm, say. Absolutely, yeah. And they certainly, they certainly study Napoleon battle and all the rest of it, but there's you know little indication they're going to try and replicate in terms of having heavy armoured cavalry. No, that's absolutely right. The, the, the attitudes... I find the American army in the 1850s um, really fascinating. And you know, Paddy does make the, the point that... The, Within the context of the American Civil War, there's not enough study about how the, the army of the 1850s, US Army of the 1850s, actually thinks and prepares itself for war. Um, as you say, the, the cavalry is, is sort of is essentially mounted infantry. Artillery, field artillery, is is essentially written off in the 1850s. It's just not useful in the type of war that the um, the American army is fighting against the uh, Native Americans. Apart from coastal artillery, the um, the the, the um, Artillery armies is pretty moribund in the 1850s. It has to be said there isn't really a role for it, um, and so that has to be quickly put together at the outbreak of war, as as does cavalry. So you're seeing quite a unique army, and I suppose this is where um, perhaps Paddy underplays the nature of, of American exceptionalism a little bit. An army that's not only um, generating itself on the ground up, but it's coming from a military culture that is subtly different to European armies as well. Uh, but in the context of a relatively short book, of course, that's that's a thesis in itself, and and Paddy only touches on that rather than getting into it for uh, for obvious reasons. And uh, other scholars have actually made the point that antebellum America is is a violent society, mm. but it's not a military. There's a lot of probably more casual violence you would find in many parts of Europe, but there is this resistance uh, to having um, having have, having formed. Form uh, and of course, the American yeah. the US Army is always, always very small. So before we go on to some other points, I think it's also worth projecting into what was happening uh, simultaneously or shortly afterwards uh, in Europe, where, of course, the French fighting the Austrians in Italy in 1859, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, battlefield cavalry is still being used uh, with some mm. degree of success. Of course, there's, uh, there's terrible slaughter of, of battlefield cavalry, but it clearly is, is it is it is not absolutely uh, obsolete judged by what's going on at Europe at more or less the same time 
Mm, mm, I, I completely agree with that. And yes, you're right. It's a hard time for battlefield cavalry in, in this period, but it, it's still around and it's still functional. And no European army is willing to, to abandon it. They still see it's, it's having a, a very important role. And as uh, the work of Gervais Phillips, who's written a lot about cavalry and horses in, in this, this period, it makes the point that um, a lot of the slaughter of battlefield cavalry in Europe is because it's handled very badly. It, it does things wrong. You know, one thinks of... Uh, you know, von Breda's death ride at um, uh, Saint-Privat in uh, in the Franco-Prussian War and so forth. Um, they're doing things that every cavalry theorist has said, this is a bad idea. Even in Napoleon's day, this was a bad idea. Charging unsupported cavalry at formed infantry is is always a bad idea. Um, and that this was not, therefore, the, the end of cavalry. It was, in fact, just don't do that. <laughs> Be a bit more intelligent with your use of cavalry. Um, well, uh, just on that, about, about cavalry, I, I would say that... Civil War cavalry itself is, is very interesting because it functions perhaps not on the battlefield in, in the way that uh, European cavalry does, but it has a, a, a an outside strategic role with raids behind lines and so on and, and acting as a sort of um, irregular force, particularly in the, the Western theatre. We have characters like Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, as unpleasant as he is. As a, as a leader of ca strategic cavalry and raiding behind lines, he, he has a great deal of effectiveness. Um, and so perhaps... That's playing into the American tradition of mobile mounted infantry going deep into hostile territory and, and doing something, um, which European cavalry would prove singularly bad at, I have to say, in European conflicts um, in this period, despite various efforts to try and make it happen. I remember uh, some years ago, I read a book which pressed me by uh, uh, Archer Jones, sort of as your, your yes. American uncle, uh, <laughs> in which he argues about the importance of, of a raiding strategy, as a basic nutritional mm. strategy using. Uh, cavalry in, in in the civil war, um, which mm. was instrumental in in causing enormous strategic damage to to the Confederacy. Yes, absolutely. The the havoc that causes and, and, is is really immense. And and to project even further forward, and we will get back to the civil war in a moment. Um, the likes of Douglas Haig and or, or the cavalry renaissance after the Boer War, they are thinking very much uh, as as cavalry as, in fact as as a new arm, a new arm mm. which can be used strategic. Uh, to do enormous damage based partly on their experience in the Boer War, but also thinking back to the American Civil War and indeed back to back to, back to Napoleon. So there is, uh, we, won't, we won't get into the Douglas Haig debate at the moment, but there are uh, leading military thinkers, even in the early 20th century, who are looking at cavalry as being important, although not in terms of necessarily traditional boot, boot to boot charges. So mm, push that mm. back 40 years to the Civil War and you can see why yeah, you, you you can see why battlefield cavalry might well have made a difference had it been culturally uh, possible to produce. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating debate and and one that uh, it's still being discussed. I think you know our, our friend and colleague Stephen Badsey, um, as you've written about this, the mentioned previously, Gervais Phillips has written a lot about this, uh, and I think John Boo in Australia or, or Jean Boo. Really interesting topic about the, the idea of cavalry as a, both a tactical and strategic level. And uh, one perhaps we could revisit on a future podcast, perhaps, uh, <laughs> Gary. Right, I guess we, we will be coming towards the end. So let's actually look at Paddy's historical method. Mm. It's always interesting, as we did with John Keegan looking at face of battle. Look, actually, how does a historian work? How does he marshal his evidence? What sort of evidence does, does, does he use? Now, Paddy, I remember, introduced me to the concept of tactical snippeteering. Or tactical yes. snippeting. Um, right. What's all that about? This is this is actually one, I think, uh, for any um, historians or prospective historians listening, I think if you take nothing else from Battle Tactics of the, the Civil War book, it, Paddy's chapter, which is about the art of tactical snippeting, is really worth reading because it's it's something that it's quite rare, I suppose, in a in a history book, a military history book, which is a a chapter on how I did it and his breakdown of how he does it seems so obvious now. It doesn't seem that um you know as revolutionary, but in the context of of when he was writing in the late eighties and this context of American Civil War historiography, which tended to focus on um the the upper reaches or just simply look at, at, at memoirs individually. It was quite revolutionary. And, and his idea was to do something that, that I st think he's still relatively rarely done. And that was to scour material, really scour it. And he would scour um, regimental histories, memoirs, as well as official uh, paperwork 
And I should say the American Civil War is is really, really um, well served by all these things. Um, rich, rich heritage of memoirs from all levels. And also, of course, the existence of the, the so-called ORs, the official records of the American Civil War, which are helpfully now all digitized. In Paddy's day, they've had to use the original copies, which are just these, these really quite idiosyncratic assemblages of official reports about the battles uh, that were being fought from both Union and Confederate sides. A really interesting but also unsystematic set of primary documents. And, and Paddy combed these, the regimental histories, the um, uh, memoirs as well. And he was looking for little aspects of tactical information. Now, this really is like sifting for gold or, or looking for a needle in a haystack, because not every memoirist will mention this. Not everybody will mention uh, the range that they open fire or so on. And it, it's a, it's a labor-intensive method. But Paddy argued this is the way that you analyze tactics, because what people say in a tactical manual, a training manual, is all well and good. But how does that actually translate into battle? And this was indeed the origins of his discovery about ranges. He was able to assemble a lot of raw data on, on the ranges in which units were reporting themselves opening fire. And then combining that with people who've been in the firing line, memorists and so on, saying, well, once we opened fire, we couldn't see anything. We didn't know what we were doing. Emphasizing that, uh, that chaos and confusion. And slowly but surely, it's like putting a jigsaw together. You find these little tactical snippets, and you might read dozens of pages to get one or two of these. But gradually, once you've built up a sufficient database and evidence base, you can start to say, well, there's common themes emerging. Uh, there's common recollections about ranges. There's common recollections about smoke and so on. And from this, we can start to determine what did tactics actually look like on the battlefield. And his, his his short chapter on this is is really well written. It's it's entertainingly written. It it makes the point about how it's done, and it does take it does imply that the reason nobody's done it before is it's labor intensive. It's slow. It's 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 difficult. It's challenging to to actually do this. And as somebody who actually did this, uh, albeit for the Boer War, I can tell you it really is time consuming and challenging. Um, but it does give you. Um, a really rich set of evidence that, that allows you to look at the war in a slightly different way. Well, I must say, uh, generations of students have been taught by me. I've told them to go about tactical snippets. Uh, yes. I've, I've referred them to this. Of course, it's not only for tactics either. Uh, you, you can, by devoting a, a careful reading of sources, you can uncover uh, social history material. You can discover all sorts of stuff. And mm. um, it, one of the, the things I really enjoy doing in my own work actually, is to get a really meaty, memoir or letter or something and go through it very very carefully uh look, yes. look, look looking for, for meaning in fact just read read a sentence from it's the appendix one uh, in the book uh, paddy said no turn of phrase employed in a tactical snippet should be ignored since it may conceal an unexpected or veiled implication mm. absolutely right it's sometimes and this is very far from paddy's sort of scholarship but scholars who actually have close readings of text to sort of get mm. meaning from the, from the way that words are used. Um, this is very much part of Paddy's um, Paddy's um, um, method. It is incredibly time consuming, but it can be incredibly valuable. Absolutely, and and I think one thing I I, I mentioned we've previously discussed John Keegan's work face of battle on the podcast uh paddy was was building on that approach from john keegan of trying to get down right into the 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 the, the, the nuts and bolts of a, um, a a tactical battle uh and in some ways uh, we we forget that this was still quite a, a revolutionary approach to do it at a tactical level whereas people had scoured political memoirs generals memoirs and so on um in a way that's easier because you're dealing with with relatively fewer people in a relatively less chaotic situation whereas doing it tactically and trying to get a feel for the battlefield as paddy did was was quite quite unusual at the time and i'd actually i I'm rather cheekily i might suggest that it's still relatively unusual to get that level of granular get, get that that granular at a tactical level it's still not yeah. that fashionable to study deep battlefield tactics um just from my own experience i remember many years ago i went for a job interview at a university and um i was uh i didn't get the job <laughs> i'll leave the university's name out of this but in the the interview panel there was some incredulity expressed about the fact that my phd was largely about tactics uh, on the grounds that well tactics aren't that interesting they're very narrow um in actual fact as paddy shows tactics is incredibly complicated uh and trying to translate what actually happens on a battlefield is in some ways 
Um, in some ways, it's, it's it's almost impossible because it's so chaotic. There's so much smoke. There's so much confusion. But you can give an impression about what is actually happening beyond the individual's view of just this is very frightening. It's very horrible. Um, to to what a unit's trying to do. Um, and I, I think as a as a primer for how to study tactics, I honestly don't think that that short chapter has ever been bettered. And it's certainly one I yeah. recommend to my students as well. Uh, uh, well, I remember Paddy telling me he had a very similar experience to you. Uh, mm. being basically patronised and looked down the uh, looked down the nose when uh, at a university interview for a university job he said he studied tactics and uh, I didn't I never had that at a at a job uh, interview but I've certainly had people sort of, sort of studying tactics apparently it's it's not worthwhile there yes uh, <laughs> I hope that the, the tide is changing <laughs> well let us hope so well it's been very evident from from our discussion that we're both fans of a a of Paddy and B of uh, Pad, Pad, Paddy's Paddy's book. This this book in particular. Um, all books have flaws. Hmm. I, I can think of two or three in in this book. Any, any that you would want to? I I would, and and in some ways this is um there's two there's two that that jump out at me. The the first is that this is in some ways it's an idiosyncratically written book. I I knew Paddy. I can actually hear his voice when I read this book. And it sure, reads yeah. a lot like a Paddy lecture sounding. It does move through a large number of topics at different times. And th- there's certainly a very strong central thread to follow, but it does move around a lot. And if you are coming at this book to, without a great, with, without much knowledge of the Civil War, it's it's going to be challenging. It's a, It requires some base knowledge of the Civil War to get the most out. I also think that in presenting a book purely about tactics, um, Paddy underestimates the strategic imperatives of the war and, and how strategy and tactics influence one another. And that seems to me a carping criticism to make because it's a book about tactics and I'm saying, well, there could have been a bit more acknowledgement of strategy. But in terms of things like the, the nature of decisive battle and so on and the, the political imperatives of the war, I think that also plays a role in um, in this. The, the other, the, the final point I'd, I'd make is that that Paddy was setting out to to stir the pot. He really was. Uh, by his own admission to me, he, he was trying to do this. He wanted to sort of shake things up a little bit. And that means he sometimes pushes his evidence a bit too far. And and I think his, his criticism of the American military at times uh, borders on um, a little bit, it goes too far and, and he's, he's sort of pushing the argument that the American military was incompetent, disorganised, perhaps too far. Um, in trying to to roll back American exceptionalism, perhaps he goes too far in in the idea that the Europeans were a, at a higher military level. Um, but it's inevitable. It's a short book. It's it was it is an iconoclastic book. It's a challenging book in many ways. Uh, it's not perfect. It's a book that I, I admire greatly. But those those are three weaknesses that that have always struck me. But what do you think, Gary? What do you what do you take from this? Well, I'm, I, mean, I I would agree with all of that, uh, and I. I've been looking for a reference. Naturally, I can't find it. One of the criticisms I remember of Randy once again, Battle Taxes of the Americans, is that he hadn't consulted, or he's not consulted very much, the official record. And I I thought he actually said it in the book, but possibly it's not here. He might have written it somewhere else. Is that he makes the point that he the official records are such a vast source that you can, you can only dip into it and, and therefore you know he decided against it and one of the criticisms was well actually there are people who have mm. devoted time to going through the official records and undoubtedly they're a very very rich, rich, rich source this comes back to the problem um which paddy self-confessed confessedly was what had he described himself a slash and burn historian you go in mm. you you blitz a particular topic you write a book you move on to the next because of mm. course after this paddy wrote a, a book on, on the first world taxes the first world war he later wrote a book on um, French revolutionary armies of the 1790s. He wrote a book on Vikings. Mm. He, he, he jumped from one subject to another to, to, to another. And clearly that's inevitable there's a degree of superficiality in terms of research, although not, I think, of his, his thinking. And you're always going to lose if you put someone who operates like that up against someone who's divided, devoted a lifetime of research to the subject. So I do think that some of the criticisms of Paddy in terms of his sources uh, mm. were a bit unfair, but they're not entirely inact. Mm. Mm. I suspect Paddy himself probably would have admitted that because that, that's the nature of the beast. That's how he wrote history. That's absolutely right. And and just on the official the uh, the ORs, the official records, um, as somebody who 
some years ago did trawl through the official records it is extraordinarily time consuming and and i can understand that and um as you say paddy was a self-confessed slash and burn historian or as he he claimed to me a guerrilla historian who appeared behind enemy lines and vanished again (laughs) um it it sort of it, it precludes that that approach that in-depth continuous study of the, the archives which is is a, is a undoubtedly a weakness and i'm sure he would have admitted it himself as well but um and, he, and also just worth making the point he was writing in 1986 87 mm. just before the digital age i suspect had he had access to digital versions of the of, of the official record he at least would have dipped his toe in it but absolutely yes i mean he, uh, he, i think he did have access to or could have had access to set of the official record uh, at santos or the staff college but you know it's just so difficult wading through is it 128 volumes yeah it is and just a, a confession when, when i started my work on the, the americas of war which was actually my m film my master of philosophy thesis uh, i was incredibly lucky that at the time they just released you could you could have an entire searchable database of the official records on um cd and that made my life so much easier. Going through them volume by volume would be a Herculean task. <laughs> that's for sure. I, 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 I've got the same CD. I suspect I haven't even got the means to to, to play it on a computer no. these days. Okay, to wrap up, um, how would you recommend? How would you go about recommending uh, uh, Rally Once Again, Stroke Battle Tactics, the Civil War uh, to, 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 to to readers? You sort of implied earlier it's quite sort of you know an, an advanced text is it something brand new to the subject should should read uh i'm not so sure it is i think it would be useful if you if for for readers who have a have an idea about what a civil war battle looks like and have an idea of the course of the civil war because paddy doesn't really set any context for this he dives straight into the tactical debate and if you don't have a, a rough idea about what what the civil war looks like this this can be challenging for you it'd be difficult to follow uh, certain lines of argument he jumps from one campaign to the other he references battles out of chronological order and so on so so an overview of the the the, um, the war would be very helpful i think it'll lay to get a lot more out of the book but once you, you understand that the broad shape of it i think it's a, an excellent volume to, to come to second or third after your initial reading i really do and what about its influence? I think you mentioned at the beginning it's become more influential over the years. It has. It's. It reminds me of that that old joke about what happens to to great ideas. At first they're ridiculed, then they're ignored, and then they become accepted as self evident. And I, I know um, in Paddy's own lifetime there was a there's a monumental work by an American historian called Brent Nosworthy uh, called Bloody Crucible of Courage, which in some ways is battle tactics of the Civil War a plus size it's a really thick dense volume about not just uh, tactics in the civil war but technology in the civil war and it looks at the naval aspects as well as the the land aspects it's a it's a much more ambitious work than than paddy's it's also about three times as long but it it is entirely it's it takes its cue from paddy's study it really does and whereas as paddy um perhaps presents the american civil war as anomalous because it was incompetent uh, Brent Nodsworth's book says actually he, he placed it in a, in a wider context, as Paddy had suggested doing, and saying it's it's a it's a transitional war. It's it's got unique features. It's being fought at a, a, the first moment of, of really significant technological change, and there's elements of it that are totally unique to America, and there's other elements that you see repeated in European wars. I'd also say it's it's been a big influence on um, an American historian called Earl J. Hess who wrote a really good book about simply called The Rifled Musket in the Civil War, which is a, a deep study of what could a, an American Civil War rifle do? How is it used? How did armies train with it? What were its problems? Which takes as its cue Paddy Griffith's um, work on on the, the, the relative, not ineffectiveness of the rifle, but its lack of revolutionary battlefield impact. And um, Earl Hess's work on that's really interesting. He's done the same for artillery as well. And now I think, although American Civil War tactical studies are a little bit um, thin on the ground, it's not a popular topic at the moment, and just the battles of the Civil War, uh, a lot of modern American literature on, on battles and engagement has to recognise the influence of, of Paddy Griffith, and he provides the, the tactical spine for their for their studies. And if he were still alive, I think he'd take quite a lot of satisfaction to see it's it's had an enduring influence. But I'd say it's a silent influence as well. Just uh, I, I read avidly on the Civil War to this day, and it's it's interesting to me the number of American Civil War books that 
are taking Paddy's ideas, uh, but they don't necessarily reference him. And you think, okay, that's quite interesting. Uh, you can see almost line for line, word for word, his influence coming through, but it, he's not widely referenced. And I think in some ways that's because it's permeated the historiography. Um, but but work like Nosworthy and um, you know, Hess and indeed others, uh, it, it owes a huge debt to um, Paddy's pioneering work on this. And it's something that I think if he, if he was still with us, he'd, be, he'd take a great deal of satisfaction. So Raleigh, once again, Battle Tax of the American Civil War, I guess it has a a silent and enduring influence. Uh, absolutely. And uh, for anybody who's interested in the Civil War, as I say, although it's not a, a beginner's book, highly recommended. And if you're interested in tactics and, and how they're studied or how they can be studied, if nothing else, read Paddy's essay at the end of the book on tactical snippeting because it, it really is useful and interesting. Well, there's so many things we can come back to in different episodes. I think some of the other Paddy's other books, particularly his book on Battle Tactics of the Western Front, would be worth discussing at, at some stage. But also this this broader idea of tactical history. It's not something that many military historians actually deal with. And mm. I, it, it's a really important, I think, subgenre in its own right. I'm sure we can talk about that. But in the meantime, uh, thank you, everybody out there for listening. And it's goodbye from Military History Plus, from me, Gary Sheffield. And from me, Spencer Jones. Okay, goodbye.